Welcome to Movies Charles and Seen, episode 87. My name is Crossman. I'm Wilson. And I'm Charles. And each week, Wilson and I share a classic movie we have seen with Charles that he hasn't seen. This week, we watched the 2002 movie, Adaptation. So Charles, tell us about it. Okay. Well, this is a pretty complicated movie. Yes, it is. I think I'm going to have to gloss <laughs> yeah. over quite a bit of it. Okay, so the movie centers around Charlie Kaufman as he tries to write a script of a book called The Orchid Thief and the movie follows his woes as he hits writer's block, and it follows the author of The Orchid Thief, Susan Orlean, as she interviews the subject of the book and writes her book. Eventually, Charlie decides that he has to actually meet Susan Orlean to figure out how to write the screenplay. Ends up following her to Florida, uh, where he finds out that she's involved with the subject of the book, and they're like turning the flowers into drugs. He gets discovered and they try to kill him, but he manages to escape, ends up <coughs> writing a kind of meta screenplay that is the movie we've been watching. Yes. And then he, he ends it there. Yeah. So the, this is a, a classically weird movie. I think it's actually the least weird Charlie Kaufman movie. Maybe. Yes, I mean, that's a competitive category. <laughs> Weirdest <laughs> Kaufman movie. No, I'd say least weird. Right, that's what I mean. Like, yeah. there, there's a lot of you know good nominations. Well, he did uh, Eternal category. Sunshine, right? Yes, he did. Eternal I thought that was less weird than this one. Okay, well, there, there you go. I mean, I, it's hard to say. They're all pretty <laughs> strange. Yeah. Um, he did this one. Most recently, he did Anomalisa, which I liked, and it's also a strange movie about puppets. But this one is uh, is I think high on the list. Um, so, what do you think of it? Did I. You like it? I mostly enjoyed it, yeah, I quite okay, liked good. it. Uh, I thought that it went a little <laughs> off the rails when he met Susan Orlean and went to Florida. Yeah, when, when I was not a big fan of that, but the rest of the movie I was like very captivated well, by that, That's when the brother takes over. Yeah. Right? Like, <laughs> so that, that's the conceit there, is that he doesn't know how to end his script, so he brings his brother in and it just ends it like a, a thriller. Oh, uh, well, that makes more sense when you think about it that way. Yeah, that's, that's exactly what's going on there. He's like, I have no idea what to do here. So okay. he just ends it like a normal old movie. <laughs> Um, and what do you know, it, it does feel a lot different there. I, I remember when I first learned that his brother is not a real person, <laughs> being kind of like devastated by that. Yeah, I love that they credit him the, yes. on like the movie poster. Yeah, movie not a real guy, it turns that. out. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that, that, that would be funny if he were. Yeah, um, yeah I guess it's just like a projection of Charlie Kaufman's psyche or like the alternate reality Charlie Kaufman or something. Um, but it's kind of like who he's jealous of, but also disdainful of. It's his yeah. Tyler Durden. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it, is, it is that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so w when's, uh, when did you first see this movie? When it came out. Oh, really? Yeah. I, I did not. I don't think I would have understood it. Because what one was this, 2002? I would have been not that old. Yeah, I probably said around 2003. Yeah. And, okay. um, yeah really, I remember really liking it, I, you know, yeah? and I still do. Okay, good. Yeah, because I, I was born in 88. This came out in 2000, yeah, so I would have been like 14. I don't think I would have understood what the hell was going on here. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I like this movie a lot. I like Nick Cage's performance in it is strong. When, mm -hmm. when you get a good Nick Cage movie, it's really good, and this is one of those films. Yeah, well, yeah. And this, I mean, there, when you say good Nick Cage performance, like that can mean a lot of things. Cause, yeah. <laughs> right, because there's like... He's got yeah. a wide range. Right, because this is, but this is good Nick Cage in a good movie. And that is, like, there's, like, three movies in that category. <laughs> yeah. And this is one of them. He's a good actor. He is and, a good actor. And when he actually uses his, like, acting chops, it's... He uses his forces for good. Yeah, it's, <laughs> uh, it's, um, it's charming and funny. And I think it, it shows that he plays two so drastically different characters in this movie. And yeah. both are done really well. And um, I, I, I think it's a pretty incredible... I, role for him, I absolutely actually. agree. Like this, yeah. is, this is an incredibly challenging performance on his part. It's yeah. pretty impressive that you can tell the two characters apart despite them looking exactly the same because they're identical twins. <laughs> right. right. I mean, they dress slightly different, but you can just tell by their mannerisms and how they carry themselves that they're different people. Yeah, it, yeah immediately too. Like it, it, you don't even necessarily need dialogue, mm -hmm. right? Just like the exactly like you said, like their posture. Right, just communicates yeah. exactly who they are, and that's all. That's all Nick, right? Like that's all Cage. Just yeah, but neither character actor. feels like exaggerated or cartoony, so yeah. he managed to differentiate them so drastically while still being like you know, relatively reserved from like a normal person. Right. Yeah. I, I'm sure this is not an original thought, but I haven't like read it anywhere that. Then it might. Be. I, would, I would definitely like compare his brother to like, like a Labrador Retriever. 
Yes. Like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> he's, he's so, like, earnest and, like, really wants to, like, do well in his brother's eyes. And, right. And, yeah. I mean, neither of you watched Bojack Horseman, right? No. No. Okay, well, there's... Well, like I've, I've seen most of the first two seasons. Okay, he's like Mr. Peanut Butter, who is an actual yes. driver. Yes, yes, yeah. Right? <laughs> like, that's exactly who he reminds me of. Like, just very friendly, never takes offense to anything, even when offense is meant and clear. Like, he just, even, like, <laughs> kind of understands when... Right. ...his brother Charlie, like shits on him. Right. Like, and he kind of, like, gets it. Right, and doesn't mind. Right? Yeah. Like, that's just it. Like, he just yeah. keeps plugging along. And, like, that, I think, is really what differentiates the two of them. Yeah. So clearly, right? It's like, because Charlie Kaufman shits on both of them, right? Like, he spends the whole movie telling himself that he's terrible and mm -hmm. also telling his brother that his brother is terrible. But the brother just keeps trucking, right? Like, he just it doesn't take that to mean he, that he should stop doing what he's doing. Yeah. Right? That mm -hmm. he just needs to continue trying. And, like, that's, the, I think, the defining distinction between the two of them. Well, yeah. And I think, not to, like, jump to the end too quickly, but oh, no. I, I feel like, like, what he learns from his brother is that, like, his brother, while not as capable, is still, like, very earnest in, in his endeavors. Right. And he mm -hmm. kind of, like, learns that from his brother, that, like... It's it's okay to do dumb things or things that you may perceive to be like not as highbrow as you want them to be, and and that's okay as long as you like engage with it in an, in an earnest manner. Yeah, just be sincere. Yeah, <laughs> just, just mean it. Like that, that that's the story about the girl in high school, right? That he tells at the end when they're in the swamp in Florida, right? Like it doesn't matter if the people laugh at you, right? They can't take away the what you are gaining from the thing. Right, mm -hmm. they can't take away the pleasure of feeling whatever it is that you're feeling. Right. Yeah, I, I love that quote that was like, "You're not defined by you're defined by who you love and not who loves you." I think yeah. was the quote. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I really like that. Yeah, and, and again, like that comes from the the brothers portion of the script, right? Because if mm -hmm. the movie we're watching is this is the creating the script as we're watching it, right? Mm -hmm. Like that is. Really, the the brother not just trying to give advice to the character within the movie, but it's that half of Charlie Kaufman's psyche trying to give advice to himself, mm -hmm. like the actual guy, not the character. Which is a distinction we may have to make numerous times during this episode. Um, so, this, I mean, this movie is, has a famously convoluted and complex structure, um, and which kind of mirrors the real life experience of Coffin of trying to write the film. Which is the right? point, right? Like yeah. that's what he was It's funny cuz like to do. watching this movie I went on the same kind of meta like interaction as the script did yes. because I was I'm like watching the movie and then after I read about it and I started reading about the orchid thief and what the book was about <laughs> and what happened yep. I started reading about the flower and so I had the same thing of going like deeper and deeper in and then like back out and repeatedly. Yeah. Yeah, and, that, and I think that's exactly the journey he wants to take you on. That that's, um, shows up in Eternal Sunshine as well, right, where it's what, what level are you on at, uh, of this film. Um, but here I think that he's doing something a little different than what he was doing in, in Eternal Sunshine, right, because here I think it's, it's a more personal story to him, right, like it doesn't get much more intimate than, than what he's doing here, where he's casting and writing himself into the, into the film. Yeah, and he's he's very hard on himself too, yes. which feels very realistic. Like I I sympathize with like mm -hmm. his uh, sort of like his crushing neuroses. Yeah. neuroses and and disdain for like his inability to you know do his job, and right that's like very frustrating to him. Yeah, well, and, and there's, I think there's sympathize. a perfectionism yeah. to what he's doing, where he he wants to do the thing, but he doesn't want to do it half-ass, and he doesn't want to do it in a way that is incomplete, right? Because, like, there was a way to adapt the Arcid Thief that is doable and easy, right? Relatively easy, right? Like, he gets new, he gets numerous ideas from the Tilda Swinton character at the beginning of the movie, right? Like, make it a romance, make it a thriller, fit it into a genre piece, right? Like, the, the, those options are available to him throughout yeah, the movie. Yeah, but that's for hacks. Right, exactly. And that that's mm. what it's about. So, like, you end up with, like, this very... Like Woody Allen type neuroses meets arrogance, right? Where <laughs> on the one hand he thinks he's garbage, but he also thinks he's much too good for conventional <laughs> film writing and mm -hmm. and filmmaking. Right? That's a hard and, combination to, to <laughs> reconcile. Right, but I, it's very common. 
I like him better than a Woody Allen character though, because like he has like <coughs> a vocation in life, whereas like Woody Allen characters are just kind of these like listless <laughs> hipsters. It, it, yeah. Right. Yeah. No, he's he's more likable than most Woody Allen people. Yes, <laughs> yeah. I think. Which I th- again is to Cage's credit, right? That he because this guy in many ways could be a very loathsome character, right? Yeah. Like that he yeah. just like seems to not do that much. That he has all these problems with himself that are kind of grating sometimes. That you know he has what is kind of a cushy life by most standards, and is unsatisfied with it. But he still comes across, to me at least, as a, as a sympathetic guy and as a likable guy. Um, and that I think a lot of that has to do with Nick Cage, because like finding the humanity in here. Yeah, he he did like a number of roles around the same time period that were kind of similar. To, um, like the weatherman comes to mind. Oh yeah, forgot about that movie. Um, which was another kind of like pretty similar character that kind of the story goes about it in a different way. But that was that was interesting. I might have seen that one actually. I can't remember any of it, but I might have seen that. I have not yeah. seen it, so I don't know that much about it. There was there was some like mid two thousands Nick Cage movies that I like rented and saw during that time period, but I don't remember which ones they were. Usually a pretty good bet. Nick Cage movies in the early 2000s. Yeah. There was like The Weatherman and like I think Matchstick Men was one of them. I yes. didn't see that. That was yeah. like those. That was another like, really good one. Ones. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, and you leaving Las Vegas, right? Like that's the one that he won the Oscar for. Yeah. But that is also where he's playing a screenwriter who has major, you know, self-confidence issues. And, oh. <laughs> and you see that same kind of guy. I mean, it's a lot sadder in Leaving Las Vegas, but you see that same kind of thing happen here. The Weatherman's kind of a downer, but there are like comedic moments to it. Um, it's it's about his he's like he's like a divorced weatherman, and his life is kind of crappy. So he like he takes up archery, sure. And and his father's like dying, and it's kind of like it's about that. It's about like losing his father, but then also like find, finding something that he like cared about and like being able to like kind of put his life back together. Okay, and that thing was archery. It was archery, yeah. All right, why not? Yeah, it was just like finding this activity like helps this character. There, there's okay. more to it than that, but right. Well, and yeah. like this movie kind of ends similarly, right? And that, not that he finds a specific activity, but he does like find a thing and like gets his life back together and finishes the script and like gets some mm-hmm. some helpful advice. Um, but it it's not as clean as that, right? Because you know that the ending of this movie wasn't written by Charlie Kaufman, right? Like the end of this end of this movie was written by the brother. And <laughs> it, so it Well the brother dies before the actual ending, right? So you think that the ending is him like synthesizing his brother's lessons but still speaking from himself? Potentially, right? Like that that is the pleasant reading of what's going on here. The other reading of what's going on here is that it's just not true, right? Like that he hasn't actually resolved much of anything about himself and that he is really just kind of resigned to not finding the idea that he wanted, right? Like not being able to communicate whatever beauty and truth about flowers or whatever it was that he wanted to communicate. And I think the movie leaves that open, right? Like I think yeah. that it's not clear whether or not we should just take that at face value. I mean, maybe that desire but, is parallel to Meryl Streep's desire to actually see the ghost orchid, right? Because yes. he's hunting the whole movie to try to find like that right, like, resolution to the script, I guess, right. right? And the right way to portray the flowers. But maybe, like, it's just not there. It's like when, when Orlean sees the orchid and she's like, it's just a flower. Right, yeah, I don't think he reaches that resolution, though, right? Like, he never gets to the point where it's like, oh, this is just a movie, right? Yeah. He says, like, okay, fuck it, I don't have an answer. Well, I just mean that maybe the answer to that is just as disappointing as yeah. it sounds. Yeah, it, it sure is. You were making a face, Crossman. What are you making a face? No, I, I, I just, I like how this movie ends. I think they do a good job of, like... I, I do, too. Mm-hmm. But I, I like that it's open. It like just, that. like, totally, like, shifts gears. Um, I really enjoyed the scene where he goes to the, the script writing seminar. Yes. That was powerful stuff. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And That's like, the only scene from this movie that I'd seen <laughs> before. Yeah. It was, oh, really? like, it was like linked in a discussion somewhere. Okay. I remember really liking that scene. And yeah, like, it is. Kind of, he stuff. feels like a hack, and then like the structure of the movie changes that point because the... Because he went to a fucking class. <laughs> yeah, because the guy says not to do voiceover, and the voiceover stops the yep. movie for most of the rest of the movie. Right, and then it comes back for this little bit at the end. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that, that's a real guy. 
um, key is that he actually gives lectures, the book that they're reading the whole time. You can go on Amazon and buy it. Like it is just an actual book. Like that, that is a real thing that, that you, can, you can do and participate in. I, um, I just loved his like angered reaction when Nick Cage says he wants to write a book where that's more like a real life where nothing happens and no one right. learns anything and he like angrily tells him about all the things that happen in life. Yeah. And I thought that was a very powerful message even though I was worried that maybe that type of attitude was being made fun of. I wasn't sure. No, I, I, I don't think the movie is that sure either, but he takes the advice. Yeah. Right, like I think that's what is kind of important here, right? Like he does, like you said, the, the voiceover stops after that moment. He, he goes and like tries to consult with this guy in that bar after the after the seminar, right? Like, he seems to be taking him seriously at that point. So yeah, I think you are supposed to read it as something at least worthwhile, mm -hmm. if nothing else. Yeah. Yeah, it's, that's, that's a really funny scene. Just like how much of a hack he feels like, but he's also like listening and interested and like. <laughs> well, and he's yeah. made multiple movies at this point. Right? Yeah. Like being Karen Malkovich was a minor hit. Right, like people yeah, have seen that. Yeah, that put him like on the map. Yeah, and that's yeah. a that's a crazy movie, right? It is a crazy movie. Yeah. Uh, he, <laughs> well, one thing that's interesting about Kaufman is that he's a he's a writer. Yes. And I think it's kind of like unique in that we know about him. He's one yeah. of a handful, right? Because there's like, <laughs> in terms of like writers that a average film goer might actually be able to name, there's like him. There's what, Paul Schrader. Tarantino writes his own movies. Tarantino films. writes his own movies. Shane Black was a writer before he was a director. Yeah. Um, there's not. Wes Anderson. Wes Anderson. Yeah. Right, but a lot of these guys are like writer directors. Yeah. He didn't direct this movie, right? He just wrote it. Uh, Spike Jones uh, directed it. Yeah. So yeah, he's in he's in rare company and that he. Uh, he's like, we're aware of him at all. We're aware of him at all. <laughs> exactly. Well, we always talk about it as his movie, or we have been because he's in the movie, right, yeah. and it's kind of about him. Yeah. I guess, I don't know, does anybody talk about Spike Jones's role in this movie? I, I mean, this is a tough script to direct. Yeah. I'm sure, right? Like, both on, like, the structural level and on just, like, the technical level. Spike Jones is in the movie, too. He appears is he? at the I beginning. don't remember. Does, he pulls a Hitchcock? He's Well, he's the director being John Malkovich, oh, right? Oh, sure, yeah, yeah. <laughs> obviously, yeah. So when they're on set. Okay. Yeah, there, he, he shows up. That's funny. Nice. Oh, I've, yeah. I've wondered if the, the little speech that John Malkovich gives is like footage from a behind-the-scenes thing in John Malkovich, or if they had that set up. Yeah, I think they recreated it. Wow. So yeah. that because that's like a complicated scene to recreate. Yeah. That's. I, I could be wrong about that, but the article that I read about it made it seem like that was like a recreation. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But well. Yeah. Okay. Fine. <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah. Um, but okay, so yeah, you're right. He does he does show up in this one. But it's th this is I mean it's a challenging movie to like handle the, the large scale structure of it because it moves around in time, it moves around in location, and in it, between characters. But also there's all those sequences where Nick Cage is talking to himself, right? Like that's tough to direct to like just to block it, right? To like make sure that they're standing in places that make sense and reacting to each other in a way that is going <laughs> to line up later on. Like that that is. The, the director's job to, to, to catch that shit. Or just and filming and getting the actor to react to himself properly. Right, right exactly. Disconnected in time. So like that is a feat yeah. in, in itself, and he deserves a lot of credit for that, because that's largely the director, like, setting that up. I think since Nick Cage is in every scene, too, we have, like, a, a bit of grounding in that we at least have the character, the main character follow, and we're able to follow them throughout the movie. So even though that like fantastic things are happening and there's stuff that's like off the wall, we're still like grounded in that we're following this character. Yeah, well, I mean, he's in yeah. every scene of the A plot, right? Like, yeah. Be, but there's an entire like other movie within this thing, right? And I think yeah. that that's kind of a, the other clever move in this, in that the, the the adaptation of Orchid Thief is in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> right, like they, they, they have it's that there. story here. It's just that it should be a short film, right? Which is the, exactly the problem that that Charlie Kaufman encounters. Like, there's not enough story here yeah. for a movie, which is why they need to insert shit about. It, which is which, the whole problem, right? Like, that's why adaptation exists. Is because Orchid Thief actually can't be adapted well. Yeah, right. I, like, that's the problem. I read that. In, in, I mean, this is on the Wikipedia article, but right. there were like criticisms of the book that it was like. It felt like there was a lot of filler to just like fill out a book. There's yeah. criticisms <laughs> yeah. of the book in the movie. Yeah. Right? Like he yeah. reads the review 
the New York Times Review where yeah, the, he, yeah. he, he talks about how like there really isn't a book's worth of story here. She has long passages that aren't that connected to one another, where she just like <laughs> philosophizes about things. Because right? it's like, like it's like a New Yorker article, right? Yes. Or, yeah. yeah. At first, yeah. yeah. Right, and like for a New Yorker article, it's fine. For a whole book, maybe not. For a movie, obviously not. Yeah. Right. So like that's again like how this gets so turned in on itself, right? Is that the whole reason that this thing exists is because the Charlie Hoffman character is basically correct. And the actual Charlie Kaufman is correct. Like, <laughs> there's nothing here. You can't adapt what's going on here. Um, and so he adapts what you can, which is the Chris Cooper portion of this and Meryl Streep portion of this movie. And the rest of it is just like him attempting to adapt it. Um, and it is there kind of by necessity, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> this might it's be. It's the filler. It might be the only way to adapt this. Yeah. Well, it is. It is the <laughs> the way it was adapted. So. Indeed. Uh, speaking of speaking of which, uh, what do we think of Chris Cooper? He's the only guy that won an Oscar for this thing, um, and he's kind of great. Uh, I liked his performance. Yeah, I mean, he did a great job of seeming like a ridiculous and crazy person at first. Yes. And then just revealing all of the tragedy behind the character. Um, yeah. So that you could really understand him and take him seriously, and that's very important because I usually feel like these characters when they start off that crazy you kind of never come back from that. Yeah, I like, I like the turn that the movie takes where it's like they do present him as like kind of clownish and then they mm -hmm. show kind of these like snooty New Yorker types. Yes. Uh, like literal New Yorker, New Yorker types. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> making fun of him, making fun of like Yeah, they always, they always talk yeah. about how he's such a funny character so you can just yeah. write your book about him because he's so funny, right? And then we see all the tragedy he's been through and it just makes it all the more sad. Yeah, that's yeah. It. and that's just it. He's, he's always described as a character. Yeah. Right. They, they know, he, no one ever says he's a funny person. He's an interesting man. Right. It's always he's always a character. Yeah. yeah. And like, in a lot of ways, he gets more humanity in here than anybody else. Certainly more than than Susan Arlene does. <laughs> and I think that is a, not a coincidence, and perhaps a critique of the book as well. Right. That it Arlene puts so much of herself into these pages, which is what you see him reading over and over again, but what, the, what we get out of the movie is so much of LaRoche, right, as a person. And I think that that is clever, right, that he, he is the one that's most fully developed, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, yeah, I like, I like that about the performance. It, Meryl Streep here is pretty, pretty good, too. She mm. puts in a solid Meryl Streep performance. Meryl Streep is she's Meryl Streep. Yeah, she's a worker. Yep, she's <laughs> collecting that check. Yeah, <laughs> get, yeah. Get in there. No, I'm... She's she's great. I think she does a good job of like being kind of like a wispy New Yorker person, and, and then when the movie, like you see her, like I think she does a good job of like starting <laughs> to like sympathize with the yes. her subject. Yes. And then I like you know, their story takes this like wild turn when it verges into the. <laughs> that's when it gets good. That's, that's when she gets good. Yeah, when it becomes fantastic. She becomes a completely she, different character. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, where she's like suddenly murderous and <laughs> <laughs> right, and like in love with the subject, which is not—I don't think—actually happened. Yeah, and yeah, and, so and the I, kidnapping. Uh, the, yeah, the, guns. the main character. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the fucking alligator coming out of nowhere. <laughs> yeah, that's so goofy. Um, oh, and she's doing the drugs too. Yeah, they're like doing drugs. Uh, yeah, is that a real drug? No, no, no. I didn't think so. No. Okay, I don't. What do I know about yeah. drugs? But yeah, I didn't. I didn't think so. Um, so yeah, like, because before that, the character is kind of, I don't know, it's, it, it feels like a type. It feels like she's playing a type, which yeah. is, you know, what you would, she's exactly what you would expect a New Yorker author in Florida mm -hmm. to be like, right? Like, that's exactly how you anticipate what, what's going on there. So that she can turn that and find a different type within that character, um, yeah, that, that is good work. I, I like that a lot. Uh, what do we think about uh, the... He has numerous love interests in this movie that that never really pan out because we, we have the um, the Judy Greer character, the the waitress. We have the I forget the actor's name who plays. I'm the, a big fan of Judy Greer mainly because of her voice work, though. Yeah, she is. And I guess uh, was she in Arrested Development? Yeah. Oh yeah, she was. Um, you'll never see these again. She was <laughs> the secretary, <laughs> and we did see them in this movie. <laughs> um, so yeah, she, this was kind of a before she was famous yeah. role for her, but. Um, she's the other um, quasi-love interest, I suppose, in this movie. 
Um, and then the one that he almost doesn't really end up with at the end of the film um, that, that tracks with them the whole time. Um, other than that, like the, we have uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal as well for the, the Donald character. Um, what do we think about those, those folks and their, their presentation? I, I mean, I thought Maggie Gyllenhaal was not on screen long enough to really she wasn't. judge right. too much. I mean, she plays like kind of ditzy makeup artist who's not very... She's having fun. It's, yeah. She's having like, a good time. I think she's supposed to be portrayed as not very smart. And I guess she kind of gave off that kind of... Like, I mean, there's, there's a frivolity to it, I think. Yeah, that's but, what I mean, I guess. But, the, there's, but it's also the kind of woman that uh, Kaufman could never be with, right? Yeah. Like, it's, it's exactly... Charlie. Right, right. Charlie, Charlie Kaufman. Kaufman. Yeah. Like, like could, could never be with someone like that, mm -hmm. right? And could never keep her entertained in the same way that his brother does. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's kind of the function of the character in the film. Yeah. Um, and same with Judy Greer, right? Like, in that he can have a conversation with her, but he can never figure out the way how to, like, actually connect with her as a human being and not just as a customer. I was a little curious about the scene where where he tries to actually ask her out and she immediately, like, switches over. Because that <laughs> yeah. seemed too sudden to feel realistic. And so at that point, like, he, it's been proven that a lot of the scenes are just, you know, his imagination. So right. I don't know if that was, like, him imagining what would have happened if he had attempted to ask her out or him imagining her reaction is stronger than it actually was or something like that because it just seemed very sudden. So I, I read that straight. Like I read that as just yeah, I did an, an accurate depiction but it of what could actually be. happened. I mean, the character has like so much self-doubt that it it seems like it just, um, like it, no, no matter if it's real or not, it reinforces his belief that he's like not worthy Mm -hmm. As a as a person, <laughs> right? Like not worthy of any kind of woman's like, affection. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. Right, but on, I mean, on the other hand, here he is, like, abruptly asking out his his server while she's working. Right, like you should expect a bad response if that happens, um, especially like what are they? They've had one conver one or two conversations at that point, so they seem to have a good rapport going. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's still like you know. Don't ask people out at work, right? <laughs> Pretty good rule. Um, so, yeah. Other than that, the only other woman in this movie with any kind of major presence is is Meryl Streep. Tilda um, Swinton is is she's in there and out. too as like the Booker, I guess. Is the she's like the deal maker. She, I think she works for the studio. Yeah, she's probably a producer of some sort. Yeah. Um, speaking it's, of which, it's this, weird to see her with such long hair. It's weird to see her not being weird. Right, like she's playing such yeah. a normal person in this movie um, yeah. that it sounds like, oh wait, she can just like put on a, a pantsuit and just have a normal conversation at dinner. <laughs> I forgot <laughs> she doesn't have crazy hair or anything. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's, it, she has range. I love that. Uh, speaking of which, this movie does pass the Bechdel test because she and Meryl Streep uh, have a conversation where she pitches the idea of the movie over dinner. So hey. kudos, yeah, good on, <laughs> kudos good on that. To, to Charlie Goffin for that one. Um, <laughs> Um, the uh, the way the movie begins is is so funny. Um, they have the what they describe as the Deus Ex Machina, right. or like the, you have the whole evolution, and then like <laughs> his personal birth and well, yeah. more than that, the, yeah. like the birth the, of the planet. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and it's it starts with the pondering of like why am I here, and, and the answer is just like well. This is why, like, evolution happened, and then you're born, and, <laughs> yeah. and then you're like, not you're that here. kind of why. Right? Yeah, like, that's not the why that yeah. you're referring to. <laughs> yeah, but it was a funny and goofy way to sort of engage with something that's like probably seen as like hacky, but is also like done well. Right. Well, I mean, it's it's and done. it's like it's done in a way that they like they use like stock footage to do it. <laughs> so it's like hacky, and po done poorly on purpose, but right. it like works in the scenario. Because it's intentionally cheesy. Yeah. Right, and, it's, and he knows what he's doing here. So it's, it's again this thing with so many metal layers, right? Where it's like, yeah, I know this is canned, but I'm doing it anyway, and I'm doing it in a way that indicates that I know that it's canned, and da da da, -da, -da <laughs> right? Like, for, so on down the line. It reminded me of uh, Tree of Life, uh, where uh, Terrence Malick does, does the same move, um, his, his why is like the the universe came into being so that Brad Pitt's kid will die for no reason, 
right? Oh. And it's like, well, is this why the universe exists? But he does it straight because he's Terrence Malick. I'm glad I missed that one. You, you, you haven't <laughs> seen Tree of Life? No, I'm good. Yeah, you'd probably hate it. I'm, I'm dead certain you would hate it, actually. Yeah. Um, a lot of, like, nothing happens and, like, pretty shots of trees and stuff. Yeah, no thanks. Yeah, not into that. Um, uh, but, yeah, this one is, is doing something different. And it, it turns out that the answer to why is either because evolution happened or why is to write this script. Right. And he can't, he, he doesn't care about the first one and he's incapable of the second one. Mm -hmm. um, so, which, you know, drives him to something approaching madness uh, is, is what it feels like here. I, I feel like I really want to like Coffin a lot and I like this film. I think it's funny. I think it's a good film. I do too. I find mm -hmm. his other work to be like very hard to get into. Um, Even Eternal Sunshine. I think that's his most accessible. Eternal Sunshine's cute. I think it's fine. Man, uh, I, I like that movie a lot. Like that, yeah, I, and that's the one that I think rings most true to me. Like the people in that movie just feel so plausible and lived in. Yeah. Like I, I th that's a great movie. That's I, probably my favorite movie. I'm thinking more along the lines of um, being John Malkovich, which I want to like, but it's so weird to the point of being annoying. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and uh, Synecdoche. That movie's great. I hate it. I, hate it. <laughs> I, I think it's so boring. No man, it's, no. it's incredibly alienating as a film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. Um, <laughs> That's and you have not seen uh, Anomalisa. I haven't seen Anomalisa. It's one thing that I, d I do want to see. Because um, again, like I want to like Coffin's films, but I find that I'm like really annoyed by some of the films. Yeah, I mean, yeah. You, you should watch Anomalisa just because, for, for animation purposes. Yeah. Right? Like, it's just such a weird exercise in the use of puppets and stop motion, and I'm sure that there's plenty of computer tricks in there as well, but just yeah. as a piece of animation, it's it's a feat, right? Like, mm -hmm. and that it, he hasn't done anything like that before, and that he uses the medium to a thematic purpose is is really impressive. Like, that... that, that it's a shame that that movie kind of came and went, because um, I feel like it deserved a lot more attention than it actually got. It was a Kickstarter movie too. It, like, what it, really? It got its budget huh. from Kickstarter. Yeah. Wow. I wonder what the budget like did know that. was like for that movie. It Had was like five hundred thousand, I think. Really? Yeah. It or looks, at least the like Kickstarter part of the budget. They probably had outside producers. Okay, like, I was gonna say it looks like it's yeah. way more expensive than five hundred thousand yeah. dollars worth of, I'm, I'm, of movie. I, I read it about it last night. I'm pretty sure that was the amount. I could be wrong, but okay. I remember reading like four to five hundred thousand. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's only three voice actors in it, yeah. so that that helps because the, the the trick that he pulls is he has um, there's there's the two leads. Right, like there's the male lead and the female lead, and then every other character is voiced by the same guy. <laughs> <laughs> so there's like a lot of people in the movie, a lot of characters in the movie, but they only need one person to voice all of them. That's funny. And it is funny. And does like, he actually try to do like different voices, or like he'll do different inflections and he'll like change his pitch because he plays both female and male characters, yeah. right? And so, but it, so it'll take the audience. I didn't know that going in, so it'll take the audience a second and be like, wait a minute. That's the same guy for literally everyone else, um, and and it's pretty clever and it's used to, to comedic effect. Um, but yeah, you should we should all check that one out again. That, that movie is great. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I'll, I'll make an effort to watch it. Um, right. But I think my point though is that like some of his movies are just so weird that it's like it's cloying to me. Like that's the most common critique of him. Yeah. Right, and it's. Well heard, I suppose. And I think, that, again, he is smart, right? And he's smart enough to know that that is the critique that's been made and to anticipate that the critique will be made again. So when he makes a movie like Adaptation, he knows what people are going to say about it, right? He knows that it's going to be read as self-indulgent and masturbatory. Like, he has a masturbation scene in the movie, right? Like Multiple. He, he, multiple masturbation scenes in the movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I thought so about that. He, he knows that this is what people are going to say about the movie and executes it anyways, right? So there is something to be said for the self-indulgence of, of Charlie Kaufman, right? Like, it's it's there. Yeah, like, I like the sort of foundational idea of Synecdoche because it was just, like, him and Spike Jones wrote it. They wrote about things that, like, they wrote, like, a horror film just about, like, things that they're afraid of, <laughs> which is, right. like, the sort of minutia of of life is, mm. is terrifying to them. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's just so long and 
you know, even Philip Seymour Hoffman. So, yeah, that's like, just it. There's yeah. so much Philip Seymour Hoffman in that movie. What's yeah. What's not, not to like? <laughs> I know. He's just on screen the whole time. I, I want to like it. I just, okay. Yeah. It's been a little while since I've seen it, so maybe I need to go back to it. But um, yeah. I remember liking it. Uh, mm -hmm. That, that might have just been a Philip Seymour Hoffman thing, though. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how'd this one stack up? I know you're, you're a big fan of Eternal Sunshine. Uh, yeah. How'd this one stack up? Um, so I don't feel like I remember Eternal Sunshine well enough. I got to go oh, and rewatch it, um, kind of repeat the, the pattern of the movie itself, I guess, and put it back into my memory. There you go. Um, but I do remember liking that a lot, and I think I would like it more than I liked Adaptation, but I still enjoy Adaptation quite a bit, especially now that um, you've given a good explanation for why the movie goes off the rails so much. I think that, <laughs> I think that really makes it all click for me. Yeah, because I'm pretty sure that is the point, right? Yeah. That, yeah. I, I, to me, it feels like, I mean, these two movies have obviously a lot in, in common with one another. Eternal Sunshine feels like the emotional payoff of this movie. Right, mm -hmm. like a lot of adaptation is an intellectual exercise, right? It's like what happens if you make a movie about itself, right? And there's not that much, you know, feeling to it. Like we get that nice, the nice scene that you talked about where it's about what you love, and not uh, who loves you. Yes, that's true, and that there is an emotional payoff there. But I feel like the emotional component, which is really how audiences engage with film, right? Like, and that's why film exists, is more present and more the purpose of mm -hmm. Eternal Sunshine, whereas adaptation sometimes feels like a proof of concept to me, right? Like where he's saying like, yes, I can make a, a weird <laughs> movie that exists sometimes in a character's head and like has all these, you know, abstract representations of ideas made physical and things like that. Where like Eternal Sunshine is saying that, okay, yes, we've shown you that if I can do this, and this is what you can do with it, and this is why it is useful to, to do that thing, and how it, you know, it can become critical to a movie's emotional core. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I feel like that it's a more mature film um, in a lot of ways, which isn't to say that I don't like adaptation. I do like adaptation. But uh, I think it is, it, it shows growth. Uh, Eternal Sunshine does. I don't know. What do you think, last one? I, I think it's really saved by Nick Cage. I think, yes, I agree. I think mm -hmm. Nick Cage's performance really makes this movie. And um, the fact that it's funny is good too. I think uh, Ron, the Ron Livingston role, even though he's in it for like <laughs> yeah, <he is> great. <laughs> a couple I, of scenes, he's, I forget about that. He's so funny. <laughs> this is the best script I've read all year. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he just keeps interrupting. Kaufman to talk about all the various women that he has claims to have slept with at some point or another. Yeah. <laughs> it feels just admits to lying, like, right there. <laughs> yeah, but I would. Yeah, right. Like, Doesn't it, he? He has like, a football, too, right? Yes. He's, like, palming a football. <laughs> it feels like such, him, such a stereotype yeah. of, of every L.A. agent. Dude, bro. Right, yeah. exactly. Um, well, again, I have no idea if there's any truth to that. I'm not in the film industry, but... Uh, it, it certainly conforms with the stereotype. <laughs> and I mean, he had to give this movie to his agent, so right. or the script to his agent. So <laughs> that, that's true. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, and that's just it. Like you, you wonder. Like I wonder what Susan Orlean thought of this movie. She hated it. Really? Yeah, yeah. There's there. It's on Wikipedia. They they. She like when she first. Um, read the script she was like really upset about it but <laughs> I think she wanted to like prevent it from being released or something yeah. at first yeah that's amazing and apparently everyone else around her was like no like you have to, like you should let this go through that's interesting and I think it's that she grew to appreciate it over yeah. time though. she says she now likes it yeah so. well I mean if you just if you yeah. just come at this cold right <laughs> like what it do would you be pretty far from your yeah like, how do you even especially since it's ostensibly about her book Right, and about yeah. her, right? Like, she's yeah, a she's like in the movie. not a good book writer and, like, it, it, not I that mean, interesting. I, I, like, I, I don't know anything about her writing. Like, but I do know that she's written a lot. Yeah. Right, she, like, they don't let just anybody write for The New Yorker. And yeah. she has published many books. <laughs> um, so, I don't know. She, she probably has something going for her. Um, but, yeah, I can understand, like, if you just sit down and read the adaptation script with no context, or with the only context being The Orchid Thief, like, that's going to be disorienting, right? Like, I'm amazed it got made at all. Me too. Like, yeah. I mean, I mean, it got made on the strength of uh, being John Malkovich, like being like a quasi success or like a middle level success. <laughs> yeah, but this is the opposite of what everybody's expecting, right? So you turn in a script. Yeah. It's totally different from 
anything anyone's expecting. It's a it's a weird meta movie about the scriptwriter. <laughs> yes. Again, indulgent, personal, yeah. self-obsessed. So the fact that it gets made at all is, is in incredible. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I was thinking that as I watched it. Right? Yeah. Like, how on earth did he get this made? Um, and it, th this feels almost like one of those movies where like the, the making of story would be more interesting than the movie sometimes, like yeah. Darkness and that kind of thing. Um, but to make well, a, doing a making of, of adaptation seems like one step too far. Even Kaufman's career is interesting because <laughs> like, he writes Being John Malkovich, um, it gets passed around a lot. Eventually, Francis Ford Coppola sees it. He thinks it's good. He hands it to Spike Jones, and then it like is that what gets made after that. Okay, which is interesting because Nick Cage is related to Francis Ford Coppola. So, huh. um, I didn't know that. Yeah, his his real name is uh, Nick Coppola, right? Oh, not, yeah. I, I don't know. Yeah. Okay, I believe you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because they like he he anglicizes his name to be in Hollywood. That's insane. That's why he's Nick N-I-C. He's not N-I-C-K. Right. He's, Which I, I messed up in our, our post on Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't um, know that. Yeah. yeah. I didn't All know this that either. Time. But why would you change your name away from, like, Hollywood royalty? Right. <laughs> like, that seems very Well, very I mean, most people don't know that he's related to Coppola. So he right, probably was, he like, his trying name. to find his own, well, and, and find he, his own way. He yeah. did. Yeah. So, so, so good work. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if that's how they, like, Got Nick Cage too, like there's some connection there. Okay, that yeah. would yeah, that would make perfect sense to me actually. Yeah, um, and he likes weird movies, right? Like he, he kind of he does like weird movies. Signs up for not anything, but <laughs> sometimes the result is really good too. Um, Case in point, even like some of the B movies he's made, uh, like um, Drive Angry was really good. Um, apparently, this new movie Mandy that's out right now is supposed Which, to be yeah, really I haven't good. had a chance to see it yet, but I plan to. Um, there's another film, uh, Bad Lieutenant. Yes. This is like a well, totally bonkers remake that's not really related to the original movie, right. but I mean a remake yeah. of a bonkers movie in the first place. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. I so. mean, Wicker ran. Uh, he did the, the, the same thing, right? <laughs> yeah. Like he's attracted to strange movies, um, and he, I mean, he and he made Raising Arizona before the Cones were really the Cones, um, yeah. which is also you know a strange movie. Um, so yeah, it, it, it may not entirely be. Uh, 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 nepotism that, that brought in <laughs> yeah. that, that brought in Nick Cage. Yeah, his real name is Nicholas Kim Coppola. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So how is he related to? I think he's a Francis? nephew. I could I could be wrong a on nephew. that. Nephew. Okay. But he's like in the extended family. Mm -hmm. Wild. Yeah. He should you should make a Sofia Coppola movie. I want to see Nick Cage in a Sofia <laughs> Coppola movie. <laughs> that would be. Just I want to see him in a Francis Ford Coppola movie. Well, he doesn't make movies anymore. <laughs> Well, he makes wine now. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, He's probably making a lot more money making wine than he ever made making movies. Because so. he bankrupted himself multiple times making movies. So, yeah. So probably. <laughs> that's, a, that's a pretty safe guess. Yeah. Um, any other closing thoughts? We, I, we I got, like we this got film. time for a last question. We would we recommend it. Yeah, last I'm, I'm wondering yeah. if there's like a thematic throughput between uh, like Charlie Kaufman's story and the Susan Orlean story and the LaRoche story because there's like three stories going on, right? Sure. But I couldn't yeah. find necessarily one thread that maybe connected them all besides just like factually being connected through the events of the movie. Well, yeah. Go ahead. I was so the the Cooper. It's Cooper, right? Is the Co Chris yeah. Cooper is yeah LaRoche. LaRoche. Yeah. LaRoche is the character. Um, I think his. His story is is there, right? That he's like, he's like weird fascination, different things. He does it to the extreme. When he finds something, he does it in such a way that he be like becomes the like sort of world renowned expert on the thing, right? He's that passionate about his things. The Susan Orlean character is just kind of this like blase, wandering New Yorker. Character who, she like, talks about how she's like unable to feel passion for anything. Right? Yeah, so, exactly. So she absorbs the passions of others, right? Yeah. So that, that's why she's attracted to LaRoche, mm -hmm. right, as a subject. Yeah. Um, and then Kaufman, in real life at least, is going through like a period of writer's block where he just like doesn't know how to create this film. So I think the connection that I see between them is that like he, through his fictional brother, is able to like find a way through this story and that he like is able to do something in a passionate way even if it's like silly and doesn't like conform to like the high highbrow nature which he's like trying to write at 
Um, so he like finds inspiration in something silly, and that mm -hmm. like gets him out of his writer's block. And I think that's the sort of like loose connection between like him and the Susan Orlean character, who's like finding passion in a subject. Right. Well, and that and she lacks. The, uh, the obvious yeah. one is that it's all about between Orlean and and Kaufman is that it's how they approach having to change, having to adapt, right? Which is why the movie is called adaptation, right? Mm -hmm. Like she has to adapt to the idea that maybe she doesn't feel passion in the same way that LaRoche does. Maybe finding the ghost flower or ghost orchid is not going to be the cure-all that it's, it, it, she wants it to be in her life, that she thinks it needs to be. Yeah. Maybe uh, Charlie Kaufman isn't going to be able to solve all of the world's problems with some flower metaphor in his his script here, right? And maybe he needs to be able to learn to adapt to the world that he's living in and write the ending that his brother has, right? Like, I think that that's that's kind of like like it, it's talking about the the difference between like change and adaptation, right? Mm -hmm. Like how how just like being different for its own sake isn't worthwhile, and like you have to be able to adapt to the surroundings. It, to, to your environment, just mm -hmm. like the plants do, just like Orlean learns to do, just like Kaufman learns to do when he changes the ending of his movie. Um, so I think that that is really what brings those two characters together, because I think you see them, or Orlean and Kaufman, bouncing off one another a lot mm -hmm. in their parallel stories throughout the film. Another possible and somewhat similar explanation is that in, in the Orlean character, we have someone who's like class-based disdain for her subject uh, <coughs> is revealed to her over time. That she looks down mm -hmm. on this character, she sees him as like a kooky southern person. A character. And then yeah. when she sees his humanity, she realizes that her vapid assumptions about this character are a good critique of her own life as sort of a like disconnected, yuppie New Yorker who doesn't really seem to believe in anything or care for things. Mm -hmm. And then when she sees someone who like doesn't have the wealth that she has or the social standing that she has, but who's passionate about something and loves something, she realizes that, you know, this is like sort of a moment in that's like a moment to like reflect on and mm -hmm. possibly like change yourself. And I think Coffin is going through a similar thing where he's trying to write like a very high class film about passion and you know it, it's like a very intellectual film that he's trying to write and yeah. what he learns from his brother is that it's like it's okay to engage with things that you are below or below or beneath you even if it's like a thrill like a goofy like thriller a movie about drugs like right. it's <laughs> like as long as you like do it well and do it interesting and you're actually you know producing Engaged like a good it. product then, then it's like it is a worthy endeavor, and mm -hmm. so, so I think like that's that's the connection that I would see between all the right. stories. Yeah. He spends a lot of the movie very obsessed with originality. Yeah, right? and I think he, he learns that that is uh, again an, an exercise in ego, more often than it is an exercise in intellect or quality or or cinema. Yeah, um, and that that's important. And I think what separates Kaufman though is that like he is a good writer and he yeah. can he can like make good things. He just needs to be like inspired and he like I think is like class-based disdain for the genres that he was avoiding. I think is something that he like is trying to engage with. Right. And so. you see him actually change in his career. Right? Like Eternal Sunshine which came after this is pretty close to just a, a rom-com. Yeah. Right? Like it's pretty close to just a, it hits a lot of romance conventions mm -hmm. at, yeah. at many points throughout the film. You can still do it your own way, and you can and still you well. can still make it original and important and thoughtful and you. If you look at his credits too, he does like a lot of TV writing. Yeah, and it's like, you know, TV. It's TV. <laughs> yeah, it's TV. You know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And and like like network TV shows. Mm -hmm. like he's like well, TV gives for, you some so. more room for experimentation, right? Not on networks usually. Not, not networks. Right, like yeah. They tend to have their formula, right? Like you got to hit this plot point at this minute, and then before the commercial break, and then you resolve it by the end, right? Like if you're writing a 22 minute sitcom like that. I get the feeling like the world of TV has been a breeding ground for innovation lately just because you have so many episodes to do, and you can like reserve episodes. Still. Right, yeah, but not I, I think it's in like a very narrow band of shows. Yeah. So it's like, yeah. like shows on, you know, like one or two shows on Amazon, a handful of shows on Netflix. 
all of HBO. Uh, <laughs> yes. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, in any case, we will be back in a moment with uh, Things We've Seen. Uh, we'll see you then. And we're back with Things We've Seen, uh, where we discuss more recent films that we have seen in the theater or in our free time. Uh, Crossman, you got a good one, for, good one for us this week? Yeah, I saw an interesting movie at the Alamo um, called, it's, the title is translated, but the translated title is called, is Let the Corpses Tan. I have a meaning to see this, I haven't had a chance yet. Mm. Uh, very interesting film, <laughs> um, I liked it a lot. Very h highly stylized film. Um, so the general plot of the movie is there's a uh, there's a robbery that happens. Um, so a group of a group of guys rob a truck that's like transporting a lot of gold, and they take the gold bars, and then they're hiding out in this like abandoned village in some sort of like Mediterranean island. Um, in, in the abandoned village, there's um, this woman who's, uh, it's not like fully explained as to like why she's there, but she's like the, the lover of like an artist and she like lives in this like abandoned house. Um, and then the cops show up looking for the people who like did the robbery. Um, there's a couple other characters that are introduced into the scene and it like turns into a shootout and then they're all like, hiding behind rocks and the day is like going on like and they're all like trying to figure out who's where <laughs> and allegiances between the group start shifting and uh, like more stuff like happens based on that. Um, it's really it's violent, right? Very violent, yeah. um, <laughs> very western kind of right. shootout. Like it's like one sort of continuous like high stakes like shootout. Um, very intense. <clears throat> Uh, movie really brought up, brought on by um, the sound. Um, so there's a lot of sound, and actually there's like a major sub theme in the movie of um, like S and M and like erotic torture. Sure. Um, there, because there are these like cutaway sequences that are sort of music video like that are scenes of like S and M where like the woman who's like with the painter is like getting whipped and like. There's like gold being poured, like gold paint being poured on people, and um, the sort of like increasingly erotic moments in these dreams, and those are like interspersed uh, throughout the movie. Um, and it's unclear if it's a dream sequence of her, that one character, if it's like a shared like fantasy between all the characters, mm -hmm. uh, or if it's just like a drug-induced kind of like, like mania it's a crazy thing. scene. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, it's never really explained, which is fine. Yeah. Um, and then, the, uh, going back to the sound, uh, the reason the sound is important um, is it really like drives the tension in the film, where you like you see people like like kind of like wearing leather gloves and like kind of like crushing their hands together like this, and you hear like rubber rubbing or the uh, like leather rubbing on leather, okay. uh, yeah. which like yeah. sort of builds into that like the S and M like undercurrent sure. of, of sure. the film. Um, and there there are other things like that, like really loud gunshots and like people walking across wood, and you hear like duh, 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 <laughs> like um, the sound is like so intense. Um, apparently, the way that they shot it is they didn't record any of the live sound other than to get um, j just like a, a throwaway track so that the actors could hear like they're uh, emoting. Yeah. Um, all the sound was done in studio, so it's like mm -hmm. it's like very in, in, intense, like huh, way louder silence. than you expect it to be. Right. Yeah. Um, and then the colors in the film, everything is like super high contrast and like lens lens filters mm -hmm. and then when they move into like the music video kind of stuff it's like blown out colors that are like fantasy-esque and it's cool it's a really cool film um it's in french the uh filmmakers are belgian um mm -hmm. and it's two filmmakers uh or there's two directors a woman and a man um apparently they shot it in an abandoned greek village on corsica and it's it's a cool film. I would recommend it. It's very intense. Like like you never like you never right. you're like on edge like waiting for like a very violent thing to happen. <laughs> and then it at, does. at all moments. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I've, I've yeah. Heard, I heard about this one a little while ago and I've been meaning to see it and I didn't 
get around to it. It felt like it was like in and out of theaters. So I hope it's still showing somewhere. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I've, I'm looking forward to seeing it eventually. I was I was at a pretty packed uh, showing, and the directors were actually there. They did a Q cool. and A, which was interesting. Um, they're. Um, their English was pretty good, but they did have to like work with each other to like find the word <laughs> that they were trying to get to. Um, but it was interesting to hear about their process and about their um, their work. Right. Um, I guess the book that it's based on is just like a straightforward like Western story. Cool. So all this like additional stuff is is like a a work of the director um, or directors. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, it's cool. I, I recommend it. Yeah, you can I'm, probably find it online now. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I plan to check it out. No, I want to see it in the theater if I can. So I'm gonna. It's good on the theater. It's yeah. so beautifully shot. The yeah. like Mediterranean is the beautiful in this. Right. Well, it, it feels like a desert, but you see the ocean always like off in the distance. Okay. And yeah, it's cool. It's it's very like Western, but like on the ocean. Yeah. I'm into it. Yeah. All right, Charles. What do you see? Something good. Yeah, I saw Searching at last. Oh yeah, please tell uh, me what you thought. Wilson has spoken about this before, but I, I, I quite enjoyed this movie. Good. Um, like, I don't think it's a movie that I'm gonna like hold with me or really remember for a long period of time. But it was a good time in the theater. Um, yeah. Uh, at first, I was worried that the conceit of everything happening on digital screens would feel claustrophobic, and it did at first. Um, but eventually, I started to kind of get used to it, and it started to work in the favor of the film. Really? Yeah. Okay, at a very uh, different reaction. At least that's how I felt, because, like, in a way, that's a big part of how I interact with the world these days, sure. right? It's just in front of a screen. You know, most of the people I talk to, I talk to on Facebook Messenger. Oh, this is the one where the guy's daughter is missing, yeah. right? And he, like, yeah, 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 yeah. The brief this, this is the John Cho movie yeah. where he's searching for his daughter, and yeah. the entire movie is done on computer screens. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, like I said, a lot of my life is just on the screen of a computer or through true a phone. True for many of us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's true for most of us these days. And yeah. so it's Cross kind of a realistic depiction right of, yeah. <laughs> it's a realistic depiction of how we, uh, interact with the world, right? Mm -hmm. So that's an interesting, like, commentary there. Uh, I loved how much detail they squeezed into every scene. Yeah. Because there's always so much going on in the background because there's a bunch of windows open, right? Um, and there's all these little details telling about the story of what's going on in John Cho's life. Um, yeah, it's, it's amazing how they managed to tell a story just with a computer screen, how that's laid out, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, he logs onto his daughter's computer to start trying to get some information, and then some time passes and it cuts back to the desktop, and you see all these icons like strewn about the desktop, right? Mm -hmm. And I know how that feels when you're like deep, like <laughs> writing an essay in college or something, and there's just shit everywhere on your desktop because you don't have time to clean it up, right? And so he's, it's kind of like the, you know, modern day version of a map with red string all over it, right? <laughs> yeah, it's just exactly strewn like. all over the desktop, and that yeah. was cool. Uh, or, you know, you can see all the little extra emails and chats that are going on. Like, I read it, I missed it during the movie. You can watch it multiple times and catch all these different things. But I read that there was, like, a little chat that he had with someone he had gone out on a date with because his wife had died many mm -hmm. years prior. And throughout the movie, she keeps pinging him, like, wondering why he's not responding. And then the news breaks out about the missing daughter, and she goes, oh, my God, this must be why you haven't responded to me. If you need any help, just let me know or whatever. Right? I, I did not catch that. And I thought that was an amusing little, like, sub-story. And there's a bunch of other stuff like that, and I thought that okay. was a lot of fun. Uh, the plot itself, it was good enough. Um, I thought the ending felt a little on the nose, maybe. Um, but it was good enough. Um, the revelation that leads to like discovering what happened, I thought was really funny. I don't know if I want to spoil it yet. I laughed. Yeah, I thought it was. <laughs> I thought it so, was not that good. But, okay, I yeah. think I think that it's been long enough that I can talk about it, right? Do you care, uh, do, do you care? Okay. So, the case has kind of been wrapped up, uh, and they conclude that his daughter is dead. Um, but when he's like trying to do the funeral arrangements, he notices that the photo from the funeral site resembles uh, the photo of someone who had been chatting with his daughter in the past that he was investigating. Uh, and he realizes that that chat personality was fake because it's a stock photo of a woman uh, that was being used as the avatar. <laughs> so dumb. Right, and so then he realizes <laughs> that the police officer or detective had been lying to him because she said that she checked out <laughs> the chat profile and that 
and like treat it as if it was actually the woman. Right, right. Right, and I just thought that was really funny because I've seen so many like stock photo memes and like <clears throat> see the same stock photo person all over the place and so I thought that was a very real like kind of thing that could happen um, and if, I just thought it was really if funny. If you watch um, Catfish, like mm -hmm. Catfish, the yeah. MTV show, yeah. like that's like the crux of like every single Catfish yeah. case. Is that well, that's what they just, they just the first thing that they do is they Google image search the like image of the person, and which is like, exactly the first thing you should yeah. do if you think you might be getting catfished. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, and like they, like your movie about com like computer mysteries and like computer identity mysteries and the big, you know, movie breaking, case breaking moment is catfishing. It's like, really, right? Like that's that's the big thing. Like that's the. The plot point that we're gonna go with here, like that, that felt really canned to me. Like that felt really easy, because the first, like, bit. when I sat down to watch the movie, I was like, all right. So the first thing I'm gonna be on the lookout for is like, is the answer to everything that's going on here a big catfish scam? And yes, turns <laughs> out so it is, right? And they, and like they telegraph at the beginning, like the 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 mascot for the school is the catfish. Yeah. And you can spot that too. Then that was cute. The username for the person that is catfishing them is fish and chips. Yeah. Which is again. In case it wasn't clear that this was going to just be a catfishing story, yeah. here it is. Um, so I, I was very unsatisfied with with that. I was with happy that answer. with it. I, mean, I was I'm, happy I, enough with it. And, basically, and I'm glad you liked it. And again, like I mentioned before, when I first talked about this movie, I'm firmly in the minority. Right? Like this has been a very well received film. So it was just funny because the moment where he put pulls up the photo and it's the same woman. For like a half second, I thought that this movie was gonna turn supernatural or something, and that <laughs> um, like maybe the woman worked for the funeral company and was like kidnapping and murdering people. To, that would have been better. Like, business for <laughs> no, that would be stupid uh, and ridiculous. Um, but then I'm like, wait, okay, no, it's just a stock photo joke. Yeah. Um, but it was it was a funny like one second when I thought that. So yeah. yeah. But anyway, I'm glad you liked it. It was a fun uh, time, and again, yeah. very happy to see John Cho just as a father and not as an Asian American dude. Just happy to see him in movies as a good actor. Also that, <laughs> yeah. definitely. Period. Great performance. <laughs> just in general. Um, so I'm, I'm not going to talk about a movie this week. I finally finished uh, Sharp Objects on HBO and was very happy with it. Um, so this is the adaptation of the Gillian Flynn novel, who's the same woman that wrote most famously Gone Girl, um, that became the... Fincher movie, that was very good. Um, this one, Sharp Objects, it clearly cribs a lot from Gone Girl. Like she, uh, Flynn has a type that she typically <laughs> writes about and hits here as well. Um, Amy Adams is the lead. She plays a investigative journalist in St. Louis who is assigned to investigate a murder that happened in her hometown in southern Missouri. And so she is returning to her hometown for the first time in many, many years. There's lots of mysteries and secrets in this town. Um, and she, you know, gradually reveals them as the, the story progresses. Uh, what I found most, uh, there's a lot of things I found compelling about the, this show. It's a, it's a short run. It runs for like eight episodes, I think. Um, but its treatment of her post-traumatic stress disorder, I think, was the most interesting thing. Mm -hmm. um, she's a high-functioning alcoholic for the bulk of the, sh the entirety of the show. Um, but they treat her PTSD not as something that in, like abruptly interrupts her life and causes her to freak out and shut down, but it's a little thing that keeps showing up in like brief flashes mm -hmm. and never actually causes a, a giant breakdown, but rather just kind of disrupts or briefly intrudes upon her life mm -hmm. at peculiar moments. And I found that depiction novel, because most of the time when we see PTSD in film and television, it is A, almost always soldiers, which is not how it typically manifests, or exclusively manifests in the world, and it's always this thing that defines a life, that is something that just absolutely destroys the person's day whenever it, whenever there's a, an episode, and then that, that, that's not how it's treated here. Um, so I found that, that compelling as well. Additionally, she is an alcoholic, for the, the character is an alcoholic for the bulk of the movie. But again, it is not. It, it is something that she she manages to still do her work while drinking, while drinking a lot, while drinking to the point where she blacks out, and that again, I think is an honest depiction of alcoholism. Yes, it is making her life substantially worse, and it is very unhealthy, and like bad things happen to her because she drinks. But it is not life defining. 
and it is not something that means that this is the everything that she is doing. And to me, that felt like a mature take on these problems mm -hmm. and a, a thoughtful way of approaching what, what's going on here without really being everything about the character. Um, in terms of the story itself, it's a, it's a pulpy mystery movie. Like, people go to a small town, there's murders going on, everybody has secrets, comes together in a, what I found to be a satisfying, unexpected way, like I was surprised by the ending. Um, so it's, it's an easy recommend there, but it's most easily recommended because of Amy Adams' character and performance. Uh, she's, a, she's one of our greats, uh, modern greats, for, for a reason. Mm -hmm. um, so it's Sharp Objects, every episode is out now, you can stream it on the HBO apps of choice. Um, and I, I recommend. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> All right. So we have a we have a project coming up, right? Because it's October. Yeah. <laughs> Going to dip back to the well of horror movies for the month of October. Right. We have another uh, five Monday October, so we get to. Why does this <laughs> keep happening? <laughs> That's just how awesome. calendars work. Yeah. There's always five Mondays in October, <laughs> apparently. Um, so we're going to get to do we're going to get to five of them. So the the idea is that uh, Halloween is in October. Therefore, we watch horror movies. Um, <laughs> we did it last year. It was a hit. We're doing it again this year. Uh, what do we got up first? I, I feel like Halloween is like one of the one holidays I'm not annoyed by thematically. Oh, I, I um, rarely oh, yeah? celebrate Halloween. I don't. I, I. I don't either. But I think it's like I'm just like oh, this is yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I like the like fall nature of it. It's, yeah. it's See, disconnected from. I, I, that, that's religion. why I like. That's why I like Thanksgiving, right? Because you don't. It doesn't ask much of me. Mm. Right, all I have to do is like eat and watch football. Well, it's still a patriotic holiday, though. Or was it started yeah, as right. a patriotic holiday? Yeah, so. that's, that's true. Yeah. Um, anyways, we've we've dipped to the well of Hitchcock a couple times now, um, but we I don't think we've explicitly done a horror movie of his. Um, so I'd like to do Psycho. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, really, this is becoming a. a Hitchcock podcast where we sometimes talk about other directors, but I am totally okay with that. <laughs> we've only done two other Hitchcock Three? Films. No, we, we've done Vertigo, we did Strangers Vert on Vertigo. a Train. Yeah. Um, Rear Window. And Rear Window. Rear Window, okay, this uh, is our fourth. This is our fourth one, and I'm, that's fine. <laughs> let's, let's keep Hitchcock going. movies Hitchcock. are good. Exactly, no, I'm not complaining. It's, yeah. This is a good thing. Um, so, yeah, we got horror movies coming up for the next five episodes. <laughs> five. Starting with Psycho. And we're going to start with Psycho. So thanks for listening. Um, if you have friends that are a fan of uh, horror movies, this is a good time to jump in on the, the podcast, tell them about it. If you're liking the show, please share it on social media, comment, like, etc. And join us next week for Psycho.